This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW Sydney. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. Well, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to today's book seminar. It's so fantastic to have this in person. My name's Jane McAdam, the Director of the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law, and I'd like to acknowledge our co-sponsors for the event, um, the Forced Migration Research Network and the Institute for Global Development here at UNSW. I'd also like to begin by paying my respects to the Indigenous owners of the land on which we are, the Bedigal people, and I acknowledge any uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people who are present with us today or who are listening to the recording when it's placed online. Particularly warm welcome to the person sitting next to me, Julia Morris. Julia is no stranger to Australia, having spent time here partly for this book, um, partly for another project on which she's working, and we might hear a little bit more about that later. Julia is Assistant Professor of International Studies at the University of North Carolina, and by background, she's a political anthropologist and a scholar of migration studies. Her research focuses on the commodification of human mobility. Um, and as Jill explained in talking about this book and the work that she's doing at the moment, um, part of it, in fact, you might, you might tell the story of how you got onto to writing this particular book, but looking at outsourcing of detention and immigration detention as a, a kind of um, you know, industry but also how that then connects with um, what has happened historically in Nauru um, and how the mining of resources perhaps turned into the mining of humanity as well. So hot off the press, and literally hot off the press, it arrived um, just at the end of last week, is the book before us, Asylum and Extraction in the Republic of Nauru. It provides a fascinating insight into Australia's offshore processing arrangements and the impact that that's had on Nauruans, on the workforce, on migrant populations, uh, and of course on refugees themselves. She's undertaken extensive fieldwork in Nauru, and we were talking about the fact she actually got a visa to go there, which was perhaps aided by the fact she didn't have an Australian passport. Um, so she did extensive fieldwork there, as well as in Australia and in Geneva, and also delved into the archives of the British Phosphate. Commission. She charts Nauru's experience um, through the colonial connection to phosphate mining um, into this new asylum industry and looking at the way social workers, clinicians, policy makers, lawyers and others have engaged with this over time. So Julia, welcome. As I said, it's a great pleasure to have you here in person. Perhaps we can begin by just asking what it was that inspired you to write this book. Um, yeah, so I think initially I was inspired both, um, I think, as with many of you, by a passion for mobility and for migration. Um, as someone who has lived between different countries, despite my accent, I actually grew up in Texas, I was born in Canada, so I had this transnational upbringing across countries and became very incensed at a lot of the restrictions that were placed on people uh, who were not able to move across borders in the same way that I had, so the, sort of the privilege that I was experiencing through my mobility. Um, initially, I came to this because I, um, between my master's and my PhD, uh, was involved with a grassroots organization in Austin, in Texas, that focused on issues around privatization of detention centers, so the increasing role of private corporate entities, mostly from prisons, uh, in managing detention centers. So um, I was involved with them in writing a report that was trying to expose some of the some of the effects of that. But in doing that, I also became quite concerned about the involvement of NGOs too, um, which wasn't attracting the same kind of visibility that corporations' involvement was. Um, and I think also being capitalised on by those NGOs as a way of um, saying that they were offering a, a humanitarian side of attentivity and care that corporations were not. Um, so I thought, you know, I, I need to be thinking about these 
different kinds of non-state actors as well as state actors because I think some of the challenges that if we focus too heavily on the involvement of non-state actors we could legitimize forms of incarceration that's carried out by state actors. Um, so I was thinking about that industrial assemblage and then I um, came to the realization that immigration detention wasn't, wasn't the right focus and instead I was focusing too heavily on the infrastructure um, and rather than thinking more expansively about how detention and the same kind of carceral logics of detention are manifested through um, other kinds of policies, whether that be in Australia, you know, CPVs and bridging visas, um, but or and, and also how non-state actors have also started investing in other kinds of carceral policies, like ankle bracelets, for example, that. Um, continue to control people's mobility far beyond uh, explicit immigration detention sites. Um, and when I started out doing my PhD, I was, yeah, I guess, inspired by this drive to want to expose this industrial assemblage that I saw um, operating to restrict people's mobility and the, and the commodification of, of people's mobility. Um, but I was initially conducting research in Geneva. I was looking at the role of intergovernmental organizations. Um, and I realized that so much of the value, and I conceptualize it as value rather than profit, um, was focused on asylum seekers and refugees. And um, these different forms of value, whether that be geopolitical value of ways in which governments have banked on the ideological utility of, of refugees over the years um, as either through a deterrent spectacle or through a humanitarian spectacle um, was converging with, of course, financial logics uh, and, and moral values too. So the ways in which people coming with very good intentions and being very incensed about, uh, about governance regimes were also very tied into uh, wanting to focus on asylum seekers and refugees. So I sort of had this, um, I was observing these kinds of ways in which the overwhelming focus on asylum seekers and refugees was creating these sort of hierarchies of suffering and um, resulting in more restrictions on, on people who were not able to judge through um, the different kinds of uh, determination standards that were the uh, were being leveled in order to, you know, save refugee from non-refugee. Um, and I decided to then focus the uh, my fieldwork in Australia because, as you all know, Australia, uh, when it comes to immigration detention, but more broadly, um, has this very complex network of both facilities that are wholly privatized as well as involvement of NGOs, involvement of faith-based organizations, um, so it seemed like a very powerful place from which to examine what I what I wanted to wanted to look at, um, and then from sort of having this huge macro uh, focus, I you know found myself in the world's smallest island nation um, of realizing that Nauru uh, was really microcosmic of what I was trying to examine more globally, and that the same kind the industry comp contracts there were so extreme. And I initially went to Nauru just conducting some pilot research. And when I got there, just saw quite how starkly refugees and the, the, well, the asylum industry there rubbed up alongside past histories of phosphate mining. It was just, it was so visible the ways in which um, this, this new industry had taken life within past colonial extractive forms. Um, so, um, so that kind of that drove me to that drove me to Nauru, and I guess sort of the added part of that was I really wanted to make visible the impacts of this industry on Nauruans and seeing this added post-colonial, neo-colonial dimension uh, that was um, that was taking place in Nauru and the ways in which Nauruans were being very heavily maligned within particularly Australian and global media, um, whereas in reality, a lot of people locally didn't agree with this arrangement and were very sympathetic to wanting asylum seekers and refugees to, to have residency in Australia. Um, so that was sort of this added, I think, drive of wanting to um, kind of unveil some of the just dark 
uh, just dark logics of what was going on in Nauru, but through a narrative and through a representation that was also sympathetic to the impacts of this, not just on asylum seekers and refugees, but also on local Nauruans. Thank you. I mean, I, I was saying to Julia that because we only just got the book, I haven't had a chance to read the whole thing, but I was reading little parts of it as I flipped through, and I said it's highly accessible, and you know, it's stories, some of the stories you present instantly draw you in. And then when we were just chatting before and you were talking about the impact on Nauruans, I said, that, you know, that's something that you don't hear a lot about in Australia, and particularly this idea that people were willing to kind of call out what they saw but felt, well, hang on a second, if you're going to say this is the worst country on earth and why on earth would anyone want to live here, then we don't like that either. So this mm. tension between, you know, then how they become portrayed globally. So I guess it would be interesting for you perhaps to talk a little more about that and as part of that as well, you know, what were you hoping to achieve through the stories that you unravel mm. in this book? Um, yeah, I guess taking together I think the stories that I, I focus on in the book just overwhelmingly un unmask the impacts of outsourcing asylum uh, in this way and sort of warn against the, the consequences of these kinds of arrangements and, you know, arrangements that are taking place in uh, in other regions all around the world. So, you know, some of you are, are probably familiar with the, the latest UK Rwanda £140 pounds, uh, million pounds, uh, deal. So I, um, I think, was hoping to achieve a more expansive focus that doesn't think just about the consequences of sending asylum seekers to far-flung regions of the world where they do not want to be, um, but also the consequences of this kind of arrangement on locals too. And so the one of the main um, bodies of literature and past scholarship and research I was drawing on was work from the Anthropology of Resource Extraction that thinks about the impacts of mining and other kinds of resource extraction. Resource extraction more typically thought of um, as, as such um, on, on local populations. So, uh, you know, the same kinds of discourses were being presented locally as the, the asylum industry being this like local benefit and bringing jobs and uh, bringing multicultural diversity to, to Nauru and this sort of thing. But um, I, I really wanted to have a much more nuanced understanding that that looks also at uh, a lot of the the realities and consequences of, of what this uh, what this does. And I guess yeah, the secondary part of that around um, what I was hoping to achieve is also encourage a move away from problematic media narratives and activist campaigns um, that are much more sympathetic to mutual experiences of exploitation. And I I guess I don't want this to be a sort of like uh, colonial exploiter, colonized exploited kind of binary because, you know, there were ways, of course, in which local islanders were profiting massively from this too, um, of people who were leasing land to the Australian government or uh, local elites who were using the detention center gym or using the healthcare provisions there. Um, but I think if we look at places in which these kinds of arrangements are carried out, invariably, the activist representations target and malign uh, those countries. So when there was the Cambodia arrangement that was mooted, all of the discourse was around uh, Cambodia as this place of like extreme human rights abuse and of dictatorial proportions. If you see a lot of the media uh, and activist narratives around R Rwanda, it's very much the same kind of thing. It's also the same kind of thing when it comes to Central America. Of how can you, how can you? hold refugees there in these places that are just um, complete hellholes. So I think also wanting to push back against some of the activist representations and say, like, we can actually see this as a much more expansively of there's exploitation and there are negative consequences and impacts that are going on across uh, local and refugee populations. Yeah, I, th I mean, I think that's really important and something that yeah, I guess also often from an Australian perspective, if you're focused on refugees and asylum seekers, that's, that's the issue you're trying to highlight so you can become quite blinkered at times to the, the broader picture. Mm -hmm. As you say, in the process, you can not only end up being quite offensive to other people, 
who've also been victims of Australia's you know, practices, uh, but that also lose important allies along mm. the way. So I think it's a very interesting thing to, to, you know, to contemplate. Um, I was wondering how you went about sourcing relevant material, and, and I think you, know, you talk about this at the start of the book, what your methodology was, and of course, like any project, you start here and you end up over here. Um, but perhaps also for those of us who are not political anthropologists, I mean, as lawyers, we have quite a different, or may have quite a different approach anyway, so it would just be interesting to hear about how you went about this, and um, and perhaps if you can, you know, is that standard part and parcel of what you do as a political anthropologist, mm. or were there twists and turns that perhaps were you know, sourcing different sorts of material? So if you could talk a bit about that, that would yeah, be really great. Sure, yeah, so I guess I would be interested classic anthropological methods of um, participant observation, uh, like long time spent um, initially in Australia, uh, then uh, then in Nauru, and just involving myself as much as I could locally. Um, as, so I, I didn't actually go into the regional processing centres, and I didn't find that that was necessary because the centres were open to in-and-out movement at that time. Um, so I was able to um, just, I mean, one of my main methodologies was just hanging out at the boat harbour, sitting with the lifeguards, um, and I, uh, asylum seekers were constantly coming down from the centres because it was just so excruciatingly hot up there just to spend time um, in, in, the, in the ocean. And so I was able to have these really long conversations with people just sitting by the boat harbour, or I just tried to involve myself as much as I could as I was tied into the University of the South Pacific, small Nauru campus. Um, which is part of how, which is how I was able to get the visa too, and I was able to evade the the eight thousand dollars visa fees, um, and so I was I helped out as much as I could at the USB campus, uh, doing open days for them, or I uh, helped with some uh, English language teaching in the schools. Uh, I uh, ran in the local 10K. <laughs> I I just tried to get. I got invited to lots of different ceremonies and uh, different events that were happening. Um, I, I mean, from all sorts of different walks of life, um, of whether that be um, local, like weddings, or I was you know, in, invited to, I did go into the resettlement, uh, refugee resettlement compound. I was invited for dinner with a family on one occasion. Um, or like the opening of the new courthouse, which was to hear appeals that were starting to come through once people were being denied refugee status. And so I, I was invited to go to the opening of the courthouse. So it was just a case of trying to involve myself as much as I could do with what was what was happening locally, um, as well as I mean as well as conducting interviews. But my interviews were much more informal because I found that if I um, both if I wanted to facilitate a formal interview, I wouldn't get the same kinds of, um, just same kind of easy conversation that I would in a more informal way, um, as well as because Nauru was such a, and remains a still a very controversial place to, uh, to conduct research in, um, people would start being really concerned about what my representation of the situation might be and would start to shut down and get very worried around because there were so many secrecy uh, contracts that, that were operating at the time. Um, uh, so, yeah, kind of a methodology of hanging out. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, I guess with that, then, this is a naive question from my perspective because it's quite different from how, you know, if I was writing an application as an international lawyer, there'd be different things they'd expect from, you know, are you conducting formal interviews? With whom? Do they have, have they given consent? Mm. What are the risks? So, I mean, when you're doing the, the more sort of hanging out methodology, using your words, do people know, like, how do you then utilise what it is you observe? Is it just your observations or do people know that you might recall conversations or how, mm. I mean, how do you... Yeah, I wouldn't, ever, uh, I wouldn't ever reprint any mm. conversations okay. uh, without permission. And it, throughout the book, I just use pseudonyms. Mm -hmm. uh, and I have also created composite identities too, um, so that no one would be um, it, it identifiable in any way. Um, so, uh, yeah, and I mean, and I had the research clearance and the ethical mm -hmm. clearance to be there from 
both my university as well as from the Nauru government too. Yep. So and it was understood by everyone. You know, I said, you know, I'm a researcher. Mm-hmm. I'm connected to UST here in the UK. Yep. Um, so there was a an understanding of, of my placement there. Um, but yeah, I mean, it can become tricky sometimes mm-hmm. and be ethically challenging when you're not conducting formal interviews that are sort of these isolated, you've got your written uh, consent form mm. in that way. Yeah. Um, but um, but I think, yeah, this method of participant observation mm. just enables you to be able to understand more holistically the situation that's happening there, provided that no one is made identifiable yeah. in any way. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so I guess, I mean, as someone who's done historical research and someone who's done interviews, in, not on Nauru necessarily, but in the Pacific, I'm just curious to know your experience. Did you find it easier to do the contemporary stuff and kind of compile a contemporary record of events? Or was finding the historical material easier? Because mm-hmm. I think the stuff I've done, well, it depended, of course, what it was, but sometimes getting to the bottom of what's going on right now can be harder than saying, here's a log of yeah. yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, the archival research was far easier. <laughs> um, so I spent time in Suva. I was initially tied into the USP campus in Suva and doing that archival research into the British Phosphate Commission. I mean, it was just a case of, yeah, looking through dusty archives and uh, sort of piecing. And there's been a lot of work, too, that's looked at the British Phosphate Commission role uh, in, uh, in Pacific Islands. So, um, so that was definitely a much a much easier part. The contemporary record took both a very long time of whether that be going through visa and research approval applications, um, as well as you know being able to solicit interviews or being able to um, gain the trust of people too, um, and also sift facts from fiction um, because there's so much of a media world when it comes to comes to Nauru that you know I had my own preconceptions before going to Nauru of what the situation was um, so it took a while to to get through that and as well as the barbed context of, of operating in, in Nauru you know I was constantly worried of, mm. uh, you know is it is it okay that I'm here uh, uh, am I potentially going to find myself um, after leave the islands and so it was yeah quite a, a challenging context um, to be in um, so it was definitely the, the contemporary ethnographic work that, that mm. took far longer. I mean just on the historical materials and again that you know looking at say British archival materials or Australian or New Zealand there's an official record but of course you know, when I managed to get into some of the other archives, you would uncover things that, and certainly talk to, you know, the people who were in their 80s or talking about what their grandparents had told them, and suddenly different stories start to emerge. So the official record says one thing, of course, but what the populate, affected population themselves are thinking yeah. never yeah. makes its way into that. And so I just yeah. wondered if you came up against that. Yeah, I mean, I guess that was the benefit of, been in the room, mm. uh, so I was able to you know, have conversations about. So you know, I've I've read about this particular depiction uh, of the phosphate industry. What were your thoughts on this? And a lot of you know people really wanted to mm. to share their experiences. So uh, yeah, definitely, it can be easy to take archival research or archival uh, findings at face value, mm. and so important to also add in the ethnographic dimension mm. to be able to sort of sit through that. Well, and I think having the opportunity you did to spend time there over a sustained period also, you know, it's not like you're flying in for a week doing some interviews and leaving. I imagine as people get to know you more and chat to you, more starts to kind of emerge that people are willing to tell you. Yeah, as well. yeah. yeah. Um, so you've written, and I quote, that Nauru's refugee project has reconfigured colonial infrastructural forms, practices of dependency, and socio-legal affiliations as the country is refashioned as a company town in line with new forms of human production. And you've also said that the long durée of settler colonialism and capitalist extraction 
are deeply entangled with contemporary political developments and infrastructural projects. So I think you know when you started, you, you, you explained some of what drew you to the project, but I wondered if you could explain a little bit more about these aspects. Yeah, yeah so um, I think what I'm trying to get at with that is thinking about these post-colonial continuities between past histories of resource extraction through to present-day extractive forms. And that was, um, and part of the reason why I chose this photo I took as a, a cover, because I thought that it really captured these ways in which you have these um, sort of crumbling extractive infrastructures from the phosphate heyday that really rub up alongside this uh, new, uh, new extractive uh, industry. So, and part of my argument that w is that uh, Nauru was almost made more facilitable than places like Manus because of the company town in nation context. It's a, it's a small island at 21 kilometers squared, um, and the entire country was a, essentially revolved around phosphate mining uh, and was governed as a company town. And the asylum industry just almost kind of was facilitated and just morphed into that assemblage as this new industrial form. So you, these colonial continuities were just so evident um, and really made this new industry so, so much easier to operate in ways that um, I think have not been the case in, in, in other outsourced asylum sites. Of whether that be the fact that um, uh, Nauru uses the Australian dollar or um, like has a similar legal structure to uh, to Queensland or the education system is also the Queensland education system. So um, and there's this um, fabric that is already in place that could then be capitalized on. And then also the other part of that, as well as sort of the continuities, are also the colonial resemblances. Um, so ways in which um, one example of this is something I kind of inadvertently stumbled across um, when I was with a, a research participant was um, Royalties Day. So um, there's a royalties collection office where landowners will go once a month to receive money for the amount of uh, phosphate that's extracted from their land and I was taken to Refugee Royalties Day which was a very similar kind of uh, practice where landowners were going to the post office and they were getting checks for, from the Australian government from, uh, for leasing their land to Australian contractors so it was just you know uh, and having had these past histories of land ownership uh, that were all circulating around uh, around mineral extraction and around one kind of commodity, these systems of land ownership were then given new life through a, hu through a new human extractive project. So, um, yeah, I was trying to describe that through thinking about the, the colonial durée uh, as well as the sort of ease of one neocolonial project taking root in the shadow and footprint of a, a colonial practice. That's fascinating. I mean, you were saying before to me as well that you know, right down to individuals who sort of pivoted from mining to now I work in the regional mm. processing centre and, you know, the, the range of characters, if you like, that you met from, mm. I mean, do you, well, rather than me paraphrasing what you said, do you want to talk a little yeah, bit about Yeah, that? sure. Yeah, so um, I was, uh, we were talking about how um, another part of what made Nauru so easy is, um, or relatively, uh, is that um, Australia, of course, has this history of offshore mining. So I met a number of individuals who were coming from other offshore mining sectors and were just sort of conceptualizing this as just a new form of mining. Um, and I mean, organizations like Transfield Services, of course, you know, have this history of, of uh, outsourced uh, management of mining sites too. Um, so that meant that they were able to expand their fabric to a new form of, uh, of, of mining of, of humans. Um, of already having those systems in place to do this sort of offshored, outsourced work. Um, and, I mean, I met people who were working for organizations there who actually had relatives who'd worked for the British Phosphate Commission. 
uh, and you know, we're sort of nostalgic about now being able to work in Nauru themselves. Um, so, um, yeah, I think that sort of offshore mining fabric made uh, of Australian corporations and also industry workers just made it even easier uh, for this to for this to happen mm. and be carried out. And I guess. Um, it's interesting when you come to the end of a, a book, whether you think, actually, if I was starting this tomorrow, this is, this is what I would, you know, this is what I now know and this is what I do. So if you were doing this all over again, is there anything you'd do differently or mm. no, curious? I don't think there's anything I do differently. I know what I want to do next. Well, that's, that's <laughs> um, of, uh, I now want to make this even more directly connected to this formula and sort of policy of outsourcing asylum that we see in different instantiations around the world. So thinking through different um, ethnographic research that I've done, um, whether that be in Nauru or in Guatemala is a, another fieldwork site, um, as well as in Jordan. So um, I have been doing or had have done past research in, in Jordan looking at similar kinds of EU arrangements and the so-called refugee compact, uh, the Jordan compact, and uh, some of the uh, some of the realities of, of how that was actually playing out locally. Um, so I now want to bring together these different fieldwork experiences to, to think more as an instructive, instructive example, hopefully, of um, the, the impacts overwhelmingly negative, I should say, of having these kinds of um, these kinds of arrangements that are constantly being mooted, of whether this be, you know, the EU and uh, North Africa or with Turkey or UK Rwanda, we just constantly see these uh, sort of the outsourcing of asylum being given um, new new and greater life. So um, and Nauru is just microcosmic and very instructive, I think, of, of these dynamics and consequences globally. So it sort of inspired me to want mm. to focus on, on this more heavily. Mm. Thank you. We, we've now got time for questions and discussion from the wonderful group of people seated around this table. And I know some have work that intersects you know, very closely with what, what you've done. Um, I'd be interested if anyone's got questions or comments for Julia. George, thank you. Uh, my name is George. I work with the Institute for Global Development. Um, you had these conversations on the Boat Harbor as part of your methodology. Do you have conversations with the uh, principles of the extractive industry at all? And yeah. how are those structured? Yeah, um, yeah, I did. I mean, both with um, people who were just working for organizations like Transfield Services or Connect uh, at the time, made up of Ames and um, M MDA, um, or Save the Children, um, who, who were there. Uh, so I um, was often, and also I took part in a lot of different kinds of expat events. So Nauru actually has a Hash House Harriers uh, running uh, team, and they go on these walks every week. So that was often a, a way of just having a lot of conversations with people who, or just, uh, yeah, like sit, taking part in different kinds of events um, would bring me into just constant conversation with people working for different industry contractors or the Australian Immigration Department too. I, you know, often had conversations with people who were, uh, who were working there. Um, and so, um, yeah, so it was, or going to being invited to things like, um, there were a number of cocktail bars that opened up around the island to cater to this fly in, fly out community. Um, so I would just, you know, go to like the different nights, the karaoke nights or whatever that were happening there and would just end up getting into deep conversation with, with contractors. I also, um, in, uh, mostly in Sydney and in Brisbane, uh, interviewed executives connected to some of the industry firms there. So that gave me sort of more of the kind of party line around involvement uh, too. So uh, yeah, so it wasn't just fieldwork 
conducted in Nauru, but also, and also, I mean, meeting people in Australia too, who have been on those fly in, fly out uh, offshore contracts and having those conversations in Australia, not, not just in Nauru. Yeah. 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 Sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the reason I asked that is because uh, some of my research uh, in uh, Afghanistan and Nepal had to do with uh, these well-entrenched kleptocratic uh, networks that have extractive industries, one of the active members of the network, and these networks are transnational. They don't belong to a particular country. Mm. They're simply organized in ways that are very sophisticated and probably are the most intelligent networks out there even compared to governments. And so, you know, finding out about these networks as perhaps an extractive industry or as those that impinge on the rights of people, etc., is is good and great. My question always is, well, how do you disrupt the kleptocratic system that sits behind this? Mm-hmm. And they're usually, the ones you see, for example, in Nauru or Afghanistan or Nepal are just the, the agents, the merchants actually located yeah. somewhere else. Yeah. And, um, I feel like any any disruption that would be contemplated of this kleptocratic network, uh, and they, they have different businesses. I mean, extraction is just one of them, mm. uh, and, and commodifying humans is linked to that, as you've shown. Mm. There are many others that they do. Yeah. Uh, and to me, I mean, what's the next? What's next then? I mean, this is surely exposing a very ugly side of it. But there are many ugly dimensions to kleptocracy. Mm. And as kleptocratic actors are demonstrated to be stronger than many governments, especially in the places I've worked, mm. what, how optimistic are you that some of these practices could be challenged or even changed? Yeah, I mean, I do think that there has been some very heartening activism that's taken place around. And I know that this is just a um, perhaps more of a kind of simplistic look at <coughs> the involvement of some private actors, uh, but some of these uh, divestment campaigns that have happened, uh, like No Business in Abuse, I think was one of the movements that was um, that was happening of trying to uh, both expose the money as well as um, trying to get people to, yeah, to, to divest from some of these organizations that are explicitly contracted and profiting in this way. But as you say, it's so difficult to unravel that fabric when there's uh, transnational entities, there's like ways in which there's so many different kinds of linkages that are far more just than like someone who's directly contracted in that way. Um, but I do think that there's a lot of purchase in some of those movements that are trying to follow the money and, and push back in that way. Yeah, Brian. Um, this is maybe an ignorant question, but uh, I mean, I was very struck by you know, the $8,000 piece of fee you mentioned and mm. the um, secrecy contracts and keep concerns that people had in talking to you about what you might do with the information. And I was curious, A, have, have you seen any of the secrecy contracts? And B, what would the consequences be? What are the consequences that they're afraid of? And did you ever see these consequences enacted on mm. those people? Yeah, thanks. Um, definitely not an ignorant question. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I think that some of those contracts have been made public under pseudonyms um but um i mean people had all kinds of fears of it could just be as banal as i'll lose my job um and you know i'm getting like three times the salary uh, here than i am in australia um or it could be you know i might be incarcerated and i might be put in prison and i think that was a really very real fear um for for a lot of people um or you know have horrific fines that that might be leveled on me. I think a lot of people didn't really know um, what could happen if they if they spoke out. And there's been some pretty high profile instances of whistleblowers who have who have come out. Um, but yeah, a, a range of a range of different different fears around around what could could happen. Um, but yeah, I I know that these these gag some of the gag clauses have have been exposed in in recent years. Yeah. Matt, um, Madeline, did you want to come in? 
oh, the back of that. Madam Regent, Councillor Juliet, thank you so much. I can't wait to read the book because you're right. It is a part of the story which is largely untold perspective from Nauru. So I'm really excited about that book. Um, building on the secrecy provisions, but just more generally the sensitivities that you've alluded to, both around the asylum system, but previously the offtake mining, etc. Um, there, I'm sure in your conversation you sort of touched on four points or sensitive points, and you've also mentioned that you had certain ideas before you got there mm. to Nauru, which were changed. I mean, was there anything that really uh, surprised you, or, or that you weren't expecting in the course of your um, your work there and talking to people? Yeah, I mean, um, I had been because having done a lot of that research in Australia, I had also been swept up in the same kinds of narratives around what was happening in in Nauru, and that's not to say that it was not horrific what was happening in Nauru, but um, just the kind of level of vilification of of Nauruans, and so then arriving in Nauru and seeing um, just the amount of attention that was going locally or Australian government funded but in a weird distorted kind of way to try and uh, encourage locals and refugees to integrate with one another. Um, I didn't expect that level of, of effort of things like, I mean, in a very dark way of stuff like World Refugee Day Nauru uh, being this, uh, you know, new instated celebration or uh, things like, I didn't realize the depth to which um, there were efforts to try and socialize people uh, to thinking that this was a good thing through this sort of language of multicultural diversity because you don't really have that depiction or that um, uh, that's not given visibility I think in a lot of the um, Australian Australian reports about about the situation in Nauru and a lot of people um, locally also uh, some people bought into that of like this is actually creating uh, more cultural diversity for us locally um, and you know education syllabi in the schools were changed to encourage kids to uh, think about who a refugee is and get them to write poetry about refugees um, so uh, and of course all you know hugely patronizing and problematic um, but yeah, going going there kind of unveiled this whole new added weird dark spin layer that I didn't realize would be going on, um, as well as just the extremities of what what was happening locally and how that rubbed up against these past mining uh, extractive projects too. Yeah. Right, do a follow up. Yeah. What would your advice be or suggestion for those of us who are in Australia working on this or for other topics? Um, I mean, the visa issue is a large one, but even if the visa issue could be overcome, as Jane indicated, you know, flying in for a week against you and flying out is not going to give a sense of the place or the people. So mm. um, on topics like these and others, what can we do from Australia to, I don't know, better um, bring into the picture this missing perspective? Yeah, um, I feel like there are some really powerful solidarities that can happen um, with with people locally through things like USP um, and through different and there has been some really great connections that have happened with uh, with Manus and with like I mean the the court case that happened that was awesome um, of ways in which Australian and Papua New Guinean lawyers came together to be able to challenge um, uh, to challenge the um the facility there um so I, f I feel like there's a lot of mobilizing that can happen and also i should say there there were solidarities that were happening locally between uh refugees and islanders um between local uh kids between youth between young people who were really politicized and incensed about the fact that their their friends who were refugees couldn't get to Australia. And they were trying to do a lot to campaign locally um, of, you know, creating music videos, actually 
music videos that were funded through Australian government software that was purchased mm -hmm. to uh, like, you know, MacBooks and stuff that the Australian government had purchased to try and integrate refugees and the ruins locally, but instead was being utilized by local kids to try and uh, draw attention to their friends' situations. So I feel like there's some really powerful uh, connections that could be made either with young people, with youth, a lot of whom are you know, studying in Australia or studying in Fiji. Um, as well as with um, maybe through administrators at the at USP campus. Um, a lot of people don't agree with it locally um, or through different kind of administrative bodies to, um, to try and kind of push back and create much more of a, a nuance to, to what's going on there as well as um, sort of leveraging in a, in a powerful way that doesn't create a hierarchy of uh, victims versus villains. Gandhi, what did you I mean, a lot of people also didn't buy that <laughs> locally and just thought, you know, this is another kind of spin doctoring. Mm -hmm. uh, and yeah, there were actually uh, uh, refugee resettlement organizations from Australia who were who were flown out to try and, you know, use this sort of language and facade of multicultural diversity. Clearly, as with mounting protest and with the amount of um, self-harm and with the amount of um, just extreme violence that was... Uh, that was happening as a result of incarcerating incarcerating people locally. Um, people started to yeah like no this is not something good that we should be um, that we should be advancing. Um, so yeah, and I think you know there's a number of people in in the government who also don't agree with it there. Um, so a lot of pushback locally, but at the same time, a lot of people who were really incensed at their representation uh, in, in Australia and, and more globally. I mean, I was there around the time of the Nibiru leaks mm -hmm. uh, scandal. And um, yeah, a lot of people were, were really upset in Nauru of like, you know, if you Google Nauru, you just get shithole island. Mm -hmm. um, Can I make a comment on that question? So linking back to the early comments about the, the need to be careful about how we frame the people and also the government of these places. Uh, I, I, I definitely agree with that point. Um, and I think the, like, the nuance between the people and the government is important. But I think the, the criticism that has come to places like Nauru and so the spotlight it brings on government um, has been a huge incentive for other governments to agree to these arrangements. Yeah. And I mean, that's not to downplay the huge power disparity that exists in these negotiations, but you know, even so, like worldwide, there's only been a handful of countries that have stuck their hands. I mean, yeah. Telling that you know, in Africa, you know, Israel, the, the Denmark, and the UK, like the only willing partner they found in Africa has been Rwanda. Rwanda. And uh, and even even in the discussions in the UK, they're like, oh, maybe Nauru or Papua New Guinea because they did it before. Like there's such few countries that do this. And yeah. Think, and if these governments know that, and even if the public knows of these governments that. It's they really these arrangements can have huge public backlash and huge reputational impact, and maybe that's one of the most effective ways of counteracting the diffusion of these policies. Yeah, um, although I would actually say that there's so many more consequential impacts um, that I think would concern governments more than mm -hmm. just we're going to be depicted as human rights abusers who are chasing refugees with machetes through the streets. Mm -hmm. um, actually, if we look at if, and if there's more, I think, elaboration given to some of the local impacts um, on the citizens of those countries um, that will naturally come from sending asylum seekers who do not want to be in that part of the world and trying to hold them in, in that place, uh, the tensions that will arise, it gives this whole added dimension that I think would concern the governments of those countries. And um, I know it's 
I thought it was my understanding that uh, Kenya and Uganda were also two countries that the UK uh, had had approached, um, who disagreed not just because of concern around mm -hmm. depiction, but actually more because of uh, you know is this either like a sustainable mm -hmm. economic project that we should that we should should mm -hmm. we we should take on as well as seeing tensions that have eventuated in other places. So I feel like there's a different kind of framing that can happen that's not actually going to draw on problematic colonial tropes. Well, this just is sort of a follow-up to my previous question, but on control and fear, who is it that people are afraid of? Is it very clearly a certain actor? You know, is it the government of Nauru that they're afraid of? Is it the police? Is it the industry professionals, is it the Australian government? Is it a sort of combination? Are they even afraid of each other? Like people would turn each other in yeah. to another actor. What is the level of fear and who has the control? It's sort of still a question in my mind. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I think it was a culture of fear of just wow. like unknowing. It was very difficult to pinpoint of, uh, um, is it gonna? Is it the you know executive of the firm I work for? Is it my neighbor? Is it? And I there was this constant. I uh, felt myself this uh, constant distrust of everyone happening there. Of you know if I uh, say something to this person, are they gonna rat me out? Um, is it? Yeah, just so many different levels and dimensions of fear. It was a really oppressive place. To be in in some respects just because of the extremity of um uh just extremity of that of like an unknowing of what might happen and who might turn you in and what the repercussions could be yeah and who drafted the supersede contract was it the industry or did that language i thought that they were the i thought that they were from the the immigration department as okay. part of the provisions with those service providers of you know we're going to give you these hundred millions of dollars contracts, provided that that you keep quiet. Yeah. Well, Julie, we're very glad that you were able to get a visa to go there <laughs> and to do this amazing work. Um, it's been so fascinating listening to you, and I think the questions that you've kind of provoked are indicative of how much the audience has appreciated listening to you. We have some copies of the book available, but just in closing, Julia, thank you very much for offering to present to us. It's really been wonderful to have you here, and we hope that we see you back again in future. Thanks, Jane.